Well, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and let's turn together to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. We will be closing this wonderful book today as we look at its last chapter. I will read chapter 4 out of the book of Ruth, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Listen carefully, because this is God's word to you today. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Now the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in, in, in Epaphrathath, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. 
saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask for his blessing on this word today. Lord, we come to this passage and we know we need your help so that we can understand it and above all so we can be transformed by it. I pray that this would be the case for us this morning. May we rejoice in you more for having heard your word than before we did. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How do you want to be remembered? This is a question that I think all of us want to ask at some point in our lives. Is we've gotten a, a greater interest in our culture of examining family history, getting to log on to you know, various websites to look back and see who your great-great-great-grandfather was. Doubtless those sorts of technologies and that interest will still be available when we are long gone. So how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered, as many do, of someone who was always able to fix whatever problem came up, someone who was really handy around the house and able to provide for a family? Would you like to be remembered as someone who accomplished something great, built a great business, made a lot of money, raised well-behaved children? What is it that you want your legacy to be? We can learn something about that from here in Ruth chapter 4. In Ruth chapter 4, we've been shown, uh, really this whole book has shown us a small window into two relatively plain people's lives. We have a a man who has built himself a a great living with a well-producing field and a foreign woman who's come to live in the country. Probably most of us wouldn't give Boaz and Ruth a second look. And yet here they are, plugged in into one of the greatest family trees the world has ever seen. Here we see they are the great-great-grandparents of King David, the greatest kings that Israel had seen. And then as we saw in our New Testament reading, they eventually produced the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the ultimate king of all the world. And yet it was just this little people. And why were they known? Well, I think as this book has shown us, they were known not because of something big and flashy that they did. Boaz, ultimately, his claim to fame was caring about widows and wanting to provide for those that everybody else ignored. That's not going to get you on the front page of the Jerusalem Times. No one was blogging about Boaz. Yet the Lord noticed And the Lord was using even something very, very small. What do you want your legacy to be? How do we craft a legacy that is worth remembering? Well, we're going to look at that today. Poor Siri is always having trouble with connections. We're going to look, and I'll explain this to you, Siri, as best I can. 
to our two points today out of Ruth. The first point, the first takeaway we can look from this passage is to faithfully serve where God has placed you. To faithfully serve where God has placed you. And then number two, which is to watch and wait on God. To watch and wait on God. Here we've seen in this whole book, people going and doing what the Lord told them to do. And yet how the Lord has been guiding every aspect of that. We remember way back in chapter 2, when Ruth was setting out to go glean into a field, she happened upon the field that belonged to Boaz, the one man in all of Israel that seemed to be the one that would be able to take care of her, and happens to walk up on that field. And of course, we're meant to kind of chuckle, because this is the Lord, of course, is working and guiding her directly to this field. And here we see the same thing happening here in chapter 4. If you remember from last week when Ruth basically proposed to Boaz and saying, you know what, you're a redeemer, you should marry me. And he does. The Lord working through a sort of half-baked plan like that. And now, but he tells him, but there's a problem here. I'm not the closest in line to redeem you. See, the way it works is the, the closest relative is the one who needs to take care of the family. And only if he decides he doesn't want to do this task, am I able to do it. So he's going to go and he's going to settle this matter. So he goes to the gate. This is where business is settled. This is city hall for Bethlehem. And Boaz goes and sits down and gets ready to open court. And look who just happens to be walking by. The only other person Boaz has to talk to that day. This other redeemer. Now, Interestingly, we never get to find out who this name is. His name is never mentioned in this passage. The ESV translates it as saying, my friend. But the word that's put there is just is, is the Hebrew way of saying, Mr. So-and-so, come here. It's a nonsense word that's placed there. It's like it's purposefully redacting the name that's being used there. Boaz surely knew who he was. He was able to call his name as a member of his own family. Bethlehem's not that big. But it's like it has been removed, this name. And we'll explore that as we, we'll come back to that as we go along. So Boaz calls and gets the elders of the city together. Need at least 10 in order to be able to do any business here. They have a quorum. So they sit down and they begins to explain what's happening. Now Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so that Naomi is going to be selling the land that she has. She has inherited this piece of property from her husband that has died and is going to sell it in hopes that they'll be able to make money and be able to live off of the property sale. And Mr. So-and-so is willing to take it because this is actually a really good financial deal, at least until we get to uh, verse 5 at least. This is the opportunity for Mr. So-and-so to expand his own territory. So this gives him additional property. That makes ability to gather more food, grow more things. And if he ever needs to, it's another piece of real estate that he can sell. Real estate has always been a wonderful deal. And he looks at this and says, well, he's going to buy it from Naomi. Well, Naomi, as she has mentioned in verse or in chapter one, says that she is past childbearing age. So she's not going to produce any children. And this is important to Mr. So-and-so. As you see, the way that this works is that if you inherit this property, you're meant to take care of this widow. 
And your need to try, if you can, to sire children through her so this way the name of her dead husband isn't lost. Keeps the family alive. You can see how important families are to God and to the, and, and to the scriptures because we'll list them in great detail. It doesn't want the name of the family to go out. But when a son is born, he gets to inherit that field. So to put it in another way, if a member of your family was going to lose their house, you were to say, okay, well, I will buy and I will pay this mortgage. But if there is a child that's made, he gets to have the house free and clear. I've paid all the mortgage, but I don't get to get and reap any of the benefits. The property and the name go with the heir. So as long as Mr. So-and-so believes that Ruth is the only person that's going to be in the home, he's very ready and willing to take on this property. In fact, one commentator had put it this way. It says, Mr. So-and-so was interested in ministry to the poor only if there was a payoff for himself and his family. Costly ministry without any personal payoff? Forget it. This is Mr. So-and-so's approach. Because once he finds out that Ruth is the one who is going to be a member of this family, and Ruth is young and is of childbearing age, he then backs out. We get here to verse 6. Then the Redeemer, the other one, Mr. So-and-so, said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. What is he saying here? Well, the child that would be born from this union, well, he would still be the born of him. So any children that Mr. So-and-so has, their inheritance is reduced because now we have a new member of the family that gets to inherit from the property writ large. So he's not willing to do this sacrificial cost. This is going to cost him far too much. So he lets it go. And we never hear from Mr. So-and-so again. We never know who he was, and we never will. And it's amazing if Mr. So-and-so could have looked ahead to see the end of chapter 4. That the heir of this union is going to be the king. And then is going to be the king of kings. This is an amazing payoff that Mr. So-and-so has left behind. Now, Mr. So-and-so wasn't necessarily bound to do this from a law perspective. In fact, that's all detailed in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, if you want to look at that this afternoon. It was only required of the brother of the uh, deceased. But still, there is a moral impetus to take care of one's family. Here, he's ignoring that. The math didn't add up. Didn't make sense. He conducted his feasibility study and determined that it was lacking. In fact, uh, one commentator had put it this way. It says, in doing the arithmetic, we get the answers as completely wrong as he did. Because we have left God entirely out of the equation. We calculate and protect ourselves and insist that two and two can only ever equal four. And we may never know the blessing that we have lost. This is what this passage is pointing to us. This man passed up on a great blessing by trying to pass up on a cost. So now Boaz 
gets to step up. Here, the moment we've all been waiting for, for Boaz to finally complete this task. And the text pauses here in verse 7 to give us a little bit of background as to what's happening. Most of us, when we will make documents, we sign small pieces of paper. We don't lose our shoes when we're making official dealings, but this is how it worked at that time. This was a way of attesting that this has happened. You had your ten witnesses, and you had your footnote that this had been accomplished. So here when we get to verse 8, the Redeemer says to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, apparently there's been a, a gathering of onlookers as they've been seeing how this business is conducted. And he says that he has acquired all of this inheritance for those that were lost. Again, this is something he is not law-bound to do. He could have said, well, technically I'm not the brother, so I don't have to take on this financial burden for myself. He doesn't think that way. He is guided, as our commentators have said many times, that he is guided by the spirit as well as the letter of the law. And then everybody responds, we are witnesses. They confirm what's occurred here. And then they pronounce a blessing. It says, the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. And later goes on to talk about Tamar. You'll also notice, as I didn't notice this until some commentators have pointed out, all along, for the most part, Ruth has been referred to as Ruth the Moabite. Always a little bit of an extra, like, she's a foreigner, she's outside the city, this is someone who has been from, from, from a cursed line, you remember? Look here in verse 13, notice what's missing? Moabite status is no longer there. It's just Ruth. She's been brought into the community of Israel. And not just the surrounding community, like she's being put the same level as Rachel and Leah, the people who have built up Israel. It's pronouncing this blessing that there would be many children. And then they turn to Boaz and say, may you act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem to be known here in all of the city of what's occurred and how he has behaved towards his family. And then it gets interesting here in verse 12. It says, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, this is a really strange blessing to pronounce if you know the history of Judah and Tamar. This is referring back to Genesis 38. Judah, the... the father of the tribe of Judah, the one of whom Jesus is eventually going to come from, who's in this line, who's one of the great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers of Boaz, he had sons and gave them to this woman, Tamar. And the first son died. And so he gave the second son to her. And the second son didn't want to fulfill this duty, didn't want to give children to Tamar. So the Lord killed him over that. And he had a third son, but he held him back. Because now it's just like, well, this woman's bad luck. Every son that I give to this woman dies. So I'm going to hold this one back. I'm going to disobey what God told me to do. So Tamar decides, and this is 
the, the scriptures are not giving um, approval to this measure, but she disguises herself as a prostitute, goes and finds Judah, and convinces her father-in-law to give her a child by deception. And later on, when he finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he assumes that, ah, she has been in sin, forgetting his own involvement in all of that, and calls her to be burned. And then she pulls out some items from her cloak and says, well, don't these belong to you? This is the man with whom I laid. And because of that, he had spared her from that death, realizing he was just as unrighteous as she. That's the story in the background here. And of them, Perez is born who becomes one of the fathers in this line. So why proclaim this sort of blessing? May you be like this incestuous relationship? Strikes us as odd. Well, what do the commentators have pointed out here is that this is an example of someone who was supposed to do what Boaz was doing, was supposed to give children from the son, supposed to perform this duty. It's called leveret marriage. I'm sorry, I've not made that earlier. This giving of the son to make sure that there would be children in this line. Here, Boaz has done where Judah failed. And yet the Lord had blessed this horrific approach to childbearing. So if the Lord would bless that, how much more would he bless what has happened here? Faithful, worthy pursuit of children and caring for those that are in need. I think this is, and what commentators have said, is what this is meaning here. So this is a blessing. See the progress that has been made and how the Lord has been working. And now we get into the end of verse 12. And as commentators point out, this is as far as human initiative can take you. The whole point of this book has been to say, Ruth and Naomi have lost all of their sons and their husbands. They have no one to take care of them. They need a son. Husbands are great, but husbands tend to die and leave you behind. As we've seen here in this early part, husbands and fathers, they were typically older than their spouses, so they died earlier. This was something that was a reality in this time. They needed a son in order to guarantee that they would be taken care of. And we've got the Redeemer. Redeemer's ready. But Ruth has been married before. In fact, Ruth has been married for 10 years prior. There were no children from that union. You can get married. But there's no way you can guarantee that there are children that are part of it. Boaz has faithfully served where God placed him as far as he could go. And now we get to point two. We watch and we wait on the Lord. This is what we have to wait. Look here in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and note what happens next. And the Lord gave her conception. The Lord is the one who owns life. The Lord is the one who is able to produce what we need. Yes, it's great, good, necessary that we be obedient. But we're not able to force God's hand to do anything. We're not able to make our own way in life. We have to rely on God. 
We work hard, but we don't trust our work. We trust our God. And that's what we see here. As commentators note, this is one of the only, this is one of two times in which the Lord is explicitly said to be behind something. All the way back in chapter 1, when the Lord visited his people and the famine was over in Israel. And here again, when barrenness is over in Ruth, the Lord has visited and given conception. And then here, verse 14, then the women of the town have all gathered together. It's time for the baby shower. And they've said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Note how they've expanded. The elders were only willing to give Boaz worthiness and fame as far as Bethlehem's gates go. Here the ladies are like, all of Israel are going to know about this child of Obed. And they're right, because ultimately this child is going to produce King David. Is going to be known in all of Israel. And then, of course, as we'll see at the end, all of the world is going to know about David's son, Jesus the Christ. Here, the child represents a new hope for Ruth and Naomi. That's why they're mentioning here the, the, in verse 14, it says that he has not left you this day without a redeemer. They're talking about the child. They're talking about Obed. And in verse 15, that he will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And then they point out something interesting. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Commentators point out, as you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, when Naomi comes back, Ruth in tow, and she says, I have been left empty. I've lost my sons, I've lost my husband, and I have nothing. And Ruth, standing right there. And here they point out, Ruth has been to you like the perfect family. Seven sons, seven being the number of completeness and fullness in Israel. She has borne this child to her. And then Naomi takes and The child lays him on his lap and became his nurse, the one who cares for him. The Lord has given her a son. And this is an interesting detail. Verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name. They named the child. Remember back in chapter 1, when Naomi told the women of the city, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. The women never call her that. She's never called Mara here in Ruth. But note who the women do take pleasure in naming. They name the child, showing that Naomi has not been left empty. It's not been left without a redeemer. And they're more than happy to give this name to the child that the Lord has given to her. By the way, Obed means one who serves. This is what they name him. And then we're given... The genealogy, starting all the way back from the generations of Perez, the child of incest from Judah and Tamar, and all the way down to verse 22, the King David. And then we see Matthew picks that list up and goes all the way to Christ. What an ending, huh? To this short story. Woman begins with a family and life is good. 
sent out because of famine, loses just about everything, is brought back with Ruth, and somehow even in the lawless times of the judges, the Lord managed to work so that even Naomi would have a son. Not just any old son, but a son that would advance Israel and advance the plan of redemptive history all in this moment. Well, this is quite a story. And the rest of us can probably think, yep, well, that was great for Ruth. That was great for Naomi. They had a wonderful chance to be a part of history. They are the ones that have brought, ultimately, way, way back, but are helping in the process of bringing the Messiah. But I don't know if you've noticed, Mark. We're just salt-of-the-earth people in Sylacauga. Jesus has already come. We don't have significance like that. The answer is you do. We stand on the other side of the cross. Yes, Jesus has come. The son that was promised. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We'll detour here through these, this widow and this foreigner. Yes, Jesus has come to save sinners. Sinners like you and me. He lived the life that we should have lived. Did it everything perfectly. We had confessed earlier that we've sinned in thought, word, and deed. But Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Lived the life we should have lived. And then died the death that we deserved. And then rose again from the grave. So that we can have the hope of one day being raised from the grave ourselves. And enter into eternal life. That's the good news that we have been given. And we've all been commissioned to take that good news to people. We might not be the ones to physically bear the Messiah into this world, but we are the ones that have been charged to take Jesus to other people. And in some sense, to bear the Messiah to those that haven't heard yet. Or for those who think that they've heard. Who are happy to sit in the pew and to be religious, but don't have the relationship with Christ. We are a part of something even more significant. We have a role to play in redemptive history. Because redemptive history isn't over. We've still got the book of Revelation to go. Jesus is coming back. And we have the opportunity to help prepare that way. To give the gospel to those. He's placed you here. In Silicaga. At your job. Wherever that is. Now that's as an electrician. As a farmer. Working at a gym. Working at the farm. The Lord has placed you wherever you are. To serve him. So what is something you need to be faithful at right now? As you're thinking through the people that you know. The opportunities that you have. There's something coming to mind as saying, like, this is something that the Lord has given me opportunity to do. May it be costly? It probably is. It's costly to follow Jesus. It always has been. It's costly for Jesus. What do we need to be faithful in right now? Maybe think about that this afternoon. Or maybe this has been, or maybe you have been working faithfully on something. Perhaps you have been giving the gospel to your children. Perhaps you have been witnessing to this coworker for years. 
Maybe you've been laboring in prayer for someone for decades, and it doesn't seem to have any effect. Is there something that you need to wait on God for? Yes, there needs to be effort that we need to extend. The Lord has put us in here for a reason and has given us the gifts, the talents, and the abilities, and the places, and the people that we are for this reason. But just like Ruth cannot choose to have a child, oftentimes we cannot choose that someone reacts the way that we want them to, to the gospel. Is there something you need to be waiting on? Have you taken all the reasonable action that you can? And now you just need to begin the hard work of waiting. This same God that's in Ruth is is the one you worship. Now, Ruth and Naomi had to wait a long time. It was 10 years in Moab. It was probably a few months here in Israel. It was a lot of waiting. It was nine months of waiting to see if this child would come to bear. Just because you got pregnant did not mean that it was going to carry all the way through. It's a lot of waiting. And it may be not even getting to see the end of that waiting. Ruth and Boaz would have been gone by the time David was born, much less by the time he became king. They never got to see the miracle that God has worked in their line, that they were going to be the royal grandparents. But yet they were faithful where they were. They waited on the Lord. That was their legacy. And what do you want to leave behind? Do you want Jesus to use you? It's a real question for us to think about. Being used of God is oftentimes a very sacrificial thing to do. It's often very hard. In this age where no one wants to hear truth anymore, to be a truth proclaimer is something that's rather difficult. We get a little bit of a pass here in Sylacauga in a small town, Alabama. But it may not always be this way. Are you preparing yourself to live faithfully? Are you learning as much as you can about the Lord? Spending time with Him in prayer? Fellowship with Him? I was reading a book about holiness this week and One of the authors was lamenting how quickly we pass up holiness. Quickly we pass up doing what God wants us to do. Because that's what heaven is going to be. Doing what God wants us to do. Just be doing it without sin. And it says, how many Christians deny themselves getting to enjoy a piece of heaven here? Seeking after what God calls us to do and living in that joy. I think that's what this text calls us to. We don't know how the Lord is going to use what he's called us to do. And ultimately, that's okay. Sure, it's nice to see how the Lord uses us. It's great to have testimonies and see, well, talk to so-and-so who talked to so-and-so who talked to so-and-so, and now they're a pastor or something. It's nice to see those things, but it's not necessary. The Lord is good. The Lord will use those sacrifices that you've made especially those little ones that no one celebrates, those little acts of faithfulness that no one even knows about. Those are the things that God builds nations on. That's a legacy worth having. 
A legacy that ultimately doesn't point to you. A legacy that ultimately points to Christ. In closing, I want to read from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is a chapter talking about those that have been faithful to the Lord. And how it's actually been rather costly. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she had considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and many as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. But what does this cost He goes on for more examples of folks in Scripture. Then he gets to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel the prophet, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promise, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. But some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these we've just talked about, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the example. These were faithful to the end. They didn't always get to see what the Lord was doing. 
But the Lord was good. He brought them to a better inheritance than what they ever could have imagined. And so will we. Follow after Christ. Believe the gospel. And there is an inheritance waiting for you that is better than anything you could imagine here on earth. A heavenly inheritance that we will one day rejoice to see. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time we've had together. Lord, I pray that you would use these words that we've read. That you would use them to enliven us, to help us be faithful where we are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.